Well, good morning, friends. I'm glad to be back with you today for Bible study. Today we're going to be doing Revelation chapter 7, and it's another good one. Revelation never fails to give us some good drama. A lot has happened in the last week. Um, I would love to open with a prayer. I think we all need a little prayer today, whether you're taking a break from the news um, or whether last week weighs on your heart and mind. We need a little prayer, and that will certainly not hurt. So let's open with our prayer first, and then we'll get to the housekeeping before the Bible study. A reminder to everyone that we'd love to say prayers specifically. If there are people in your life that you'd like us to pray for, then please do either make those notes in the comments or send an email to Meredith Rose, and we'll be sure to include those people by name, if you wish, in our prayers next week. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together this morning. We give you thanks for another day of life. And we give you thanks for the love that surrounds us on every side. Today we ask for your presence, for your peace, that you may put your hand upon us and guide us to be the people you created us to be, and that together we can help bring about your kingdom here on earth. Lord, today we lift up before you all those who need your healing touch most, those people we know and those people we have never met. Today, we are reminded in particular of those who continue to suffer from COVID-19, that they may receive the treatment they need and that their healing may be swift. We also lift up all those in our personal lives who need your presence and your healing touch. Today, remember, especially before you, Nicholas. Lord, we also lay before your feet our prayers, our concerns, and our hopes for our country today, that our leaders may be filled with wisdom, with integrity, to help best make complicated decisions that guide us as a people. Today we offer a special word of prayer for our nation. Lord God Almighty, you have made all the peoples of the earth for your glory, to serve you in freedom and in peace. Give to the people of our country a zeal for justice and the strength of forbearance that we may use our liberty in accordance with your gracious will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <sighs> A little bit of prayer feels good. I hope that feels good to you too. So today we're going to be continuing our Revelation study. We'll be in chapter 7, which continues the opening of the seals we will get to the scroll very soon, I promise. Um, before we get into that, a reminder that this is a digital community here, this Rector's Bible Study, and we want you to be a part of it. If you don't receive emails from Meredith each week on Mondays reminding you of the Wednesday study or updates on our schedule, then I invite you to go to our website, stmichael.org slash rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study. Send Meredith a note Get your name and email address on our list. And you can also go to stmichael.org slash rbs to get a current bookmark schedule 
of the spring. That began last week. We'll continue all the way until early May. Make sure you know which chapters we're studying on which weeks. And I believe there's only one week in mid-March when we will not have a study on Wednesday morning. And so grab that bookmark and schedule so that you can keep up each week with what we are doing. Now... We are into chapter 7, and we got some good questions last week from chapter 6, some that kind of anticipate much of what we will discuss today. And so I won't read all of these questions, but there are a few that I thought were actually very helpful for us um, in particular, or things that we wouldn't really be covering in chapter 7 today. Um, A few issues like what are the seals and things like that, we're going to be covering that today. So thank you for those questions. Um, But a couple extra that kind of pick up on last week, I'd love to close the loop and tie them off before we jump into chapter 7. One in particular I thought was actually very helpful, and I didn't really get into it last week, um, but I kind of noted to myself that that might interest some people. So Howard asks, is the fifth seal the source for purgatory? That verse about the fifth seal, the source for purgatory. Um, It does sort of sound like that. I should pause to say a reminder that Purgatory is this older idea that was pretty common in the Roman Catholic Church, not so much in the Orthodox traditions. Um, It didn't really make the jump into the Protestant or Anglican Church, Um, but in the Roman Catholic Church, there was this sense of a middle place, um, a place where you might say somewhat faithful people go, where they're not quite perfected or pure enough to enter heaven, but they're certainly trying, or they're on their way, or they're sort of good. Um, it's, it's a little confusing, and it depends on which pope or which theologian or whatever you read about as to how they really define purgatory, but effectively it's where some people go if they don't go to heaven when they're actually better than the people who go to hell. That's that's the best I can do. Um, and so it's a good question. That fifth seal sort of indicates that there is this middle place um, where people are not quite to heaven yet. Remember when the altar moves or underneath the altar, you've got all these righteous people who are dead but not yet in heaven, and they're told to sort of wait a bit, like it's coming. Um, that is not really where the theological idea of purgatory is anchored. Um, In fact, I looked up a couple different uh, Roman Catholic books, and Revelation isn't referred to as a defense for purgatory at all in any one of them. Um, What is really the anchor for purgatory comes in 2nd Maccabees. So 2nd Maccabees may be a book of the Bible you have never heard of because 2nd Maccabees is not one we really ever study or talk about. Um, The quick of the Bible is that there were a lot of books that were on a sliding scale of legitimate or authoritative, something like that, and there were a group of books written between sort of the end of the Old Testament as we know it, and the New Testament. And those books were held up as semi-authoritative for a long time. Well, fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. So this is, you know, 15th century, 16th century. And those books written just before the life and ministry of Jesus 
were effectively taken out of what would be considered the canon, the official Bible. Those books were important to Roman Catholics. They are not in a Protestant Bible, but yet they remain in the Anglican Bibles as a special section called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is really those non-canonical yet authoritative books that are canonical for Roman Catholics and are completely unauthoritative for Protestants. We sort of, per the usual, Anglicans find this middle road where we say they're authoritative but not canonical. Okay, so there are four Maccabees, and the Maccabean books effectively are history books about what happens with the Jewish people sort of after the Greek Empire, before an early Roman Empire, that kind of stuff. In 2 Maccabees, there is a battle, and there are Jews who fight in the military for whatever righteous purpose, and some of them die, and those who survive the battle are going about picking up the bodies during uh, after the battle is over to give them proper, proper burials and that sort of stuff. They note within some of the deceased Jewish military that they had on their person little idols. These idols are, as we know, not supposed to be used by good faithful Jews. But what we find there is that the, the surviving soldiers believe that these deceased soldiers, even though they had idols on them, were really good people and were mostly, with maybe the exception of this idol on their person, faithful Jews. And so they're kind of stuck because obviously you can't have an idol, but man, they sort of seem good. And so what happens is as they collect these bodies, they begin to pray for their souls. They pray that their souls after death can be cleansed of this wrong. And they take up a collection to help to push these souls into purification and ultimately into heaven. Okay, that little process gave rise to a theological idea that was then applied to multiple other points in Scripture. Multiple books of the Old Testament, multiple books of the New Testament, including Matthew and Hebrews, became, um, how do I want to say this? were identified by the Catholic Church as mm, nodding to or indicating some deeper truth about this middle place where people go to get truly purified. This idea is basically not popular anymore. I mean, I would say there are rare Catholics that actually really subscribe to purgatory, um, I think that what happened in the Middle Ages is that purgatory became a reason to collect a lot of money, and so the church kind of gouged people for offerings to help their semi-decent but impure deceased loved ones get into heaven. It was just a mess. Um, and so the Reformations in both Protestant and Anglican Reformations just really didn't like this, and so it sort of lost its heft. And most people really don't subscribe to that anymore. Not, I suppose, a bad idea in theory, except they miss the point of grace. None of us are 
pure and perfect. We are all made pure and perfect through God's grace. And so the idea of purgatory is almost in a sense redundant because that's what God does. That's how God brings us in our imperfection into wholeness. And that's a big idea for today as we look at chapter 7. And I've talked far too much about purgatory. You can see that it was always something that I found very interesting. Um, So let's jump into chapter 7, and we're going to get to the idea of God's peace, of what the seals are, and all that good stuff as we proceed. Chapter 7 is, once again, divided into just two sections. The first section, basically first half, second half, The first section is the sealing of the 144,000, right? That's something that even those of us, even people who've never studied Revelation are probably somewhat familiar with that number. The 144,000 get sealed, and we're going to talk about what that means. And in the second section, the second half of the lesson today, we're going to speak about the great multitude. Okay, at this point in our story, before we jump into verse 1 of chapter 7, Just a reminder of where we are in the arc of the narrative. We began to open, the seals began to be opened in chapter 6. We had all the first six seals opened. So at the very end of chapter 6, sixth seal is opened. But then the seventh seal never came. And then now we're in chapter 7, we are still not going to have the seventh seal just yet. The seventh seal comes in chapter 8. So what happens is, The first five seals get opened and the action happens relatively quickly and the climax is building up and we get that sixth seal. Then we kind of hang out in the sixth seal for a bit. It's kind of anticlimactic. You know, we kind of want that seventh seal. We want to be able to open up that scroll. We want to be able to see what God is doing to see God's rescue plan. And nah, no, not yet. Got to hold on and let this sixth seal marinate a little bit. This sixth seal has a lot of weight. There is a lot of value in this particular section, and it deserves a bit of our time, just as it deserved a bit of real estate in John's letter. So let's wrestle in this sixth seal for the entire chapter 7, and we'll get to chapter chapter 8 and the seventh seal next week. Let's dig in. Chapter 7, verse 1. After I, John, saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea, or the trees, until we have marked the servants of God with a seal on their foreheads. All right, we're going to begin today, pause there, we're going to begin today with talking about what we mean when we say the word seal. So let's be clear about this word seal. Up to this point, the scroll containing God's plan has been held closed by seven seals. Now those are presumably like wax seals. You know, these wax seals were historically used to maintain security and confidentiality between the author of a document and the receiver or the recipient of that document. When someone wrote a letter, even wrote a scroll, they would drip that wax down, put that seal on that was unique to them, and then they'd have to give someone or many someones this this important document 
to be delivered to the recipient. The recipient then would know whether or not that document was secure based on whether that seal had been broken or if it stayed intact. So we are talking about, up to this point, those kind of wax seals. That's really what the story is, is giving us. Now we pivot to a somewhat different definition of seal. Now, there's a common bond here. A seal is meant to secure and protect. But now we're not talking about wax seals. Now we're talking about a mark, some kind of mark that seals, protects God's people, the faithful servants of God, from what bad stuff is coming down the road. Seals throughout the Bible were used as this mark of safety. Remember, Cain was sealed by God after he killed Abel so that Cain would be protected when he went out into the world. Same things were happened in Ezekiel chapter 9 when there were people sealed and protected from death because they were the small number of righteous people and the others were about to be slaughtered. This happens multiple times in Scripture where a group of people are sealed to be protected. We're going to talk about a few more moments here shortly. Let's continue with verse 4. Let's just read it through. Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, the tribe of Gad, 12,000, the tribe of Asher, 12,000, the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, the tribe of Levi, 12,000, the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 sealed. So we have a very clear, holy numbering happening right here. This list of God's servants closely links to the list of the 12 tribes of Israel, but there are a couple differences that we should note. First off, Judah is listed first. Now you may remember, back to Genesis, Reuben is the oldest, and yet Reuben comes second here on this list. Judah is first. So why Judah first? There are some easy ways to explain this away. First off, Judah was seen as this protector. We hear in Revelation the Lion of Judah as being that protective force that God uses in his big, big rescue plan. It's probably just as easy that Judah being that big protector is just first on the list. In addition, of the original 12 tribes of Israel, Dan is one of those 12 tribes, and Dan is left off. Why? It is historic that there were some among the Jewish people who believed that the Antichrist would actually come out of the tribe of Dan. Now that goes back to old prophetic stories, um, and it's not super clear. It's kind of non-canonical sorts of ideas around Dan, but it's probably something that John had inherited, that Dan was somehow dangerous. And so John takes Dan out of this list and replaces Dan with one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and puts him right there in the list where Dan would have been. And so it's also strange that one of Joseph's sons would have been on this list instead of Dan, one of the original 12s. But at this point in history, 
Manasseh actually had become its own sort of tribal uh, identity. Now, you might remember that the tribes at this point in time in the first century are really not that important. Um, you've got the Levitical tribe. That's pretty important. You've got the Judahites. That's kind of important. But by and large, most Jews didn't have a huge significant identity within one of those 12 tribes. However, in history, prior to the first century, Manasseh really did become an important tribe. And so if Dan had to come out, then it made sense that the person who would come in to replace Dan would be Manasseh. And you may be asking yourself, what's the big deal? Why did Dan have to be replaced at all? Well, the answer is the holy numbers. Holy numbers are not meant to be precise. They're not meant to be mathematical or scientific in some real way. They're meant to indicate something much bigger. So remember, these numbers are not meant to be specific. These numbers are meant to trigger in us a response that something divine and holy and sacred is happening right here. We get a list of 12 tribes, and then we get 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, which means we've got a doubling of the holy number 12. We have 12 12s in this passage. Those 12 12s should indicate to us just the largeness of the number of faithful servants of God. This is not meant to be a limit to 144,000. And I, if you've paid attention or listened, there are so many countless preachers who come at this 144,000 as a limit and a boundary of how many people get in. That's not God. God is not limited by some random number. Instead, John is saying it's a big number. It's a lot of people that the servants of God are huge. And we're going to see that that number doesn't really stick with precision in just the next few verses. And so don't get hung up on a specific number, but instead receive that as a big, holy, sacred number. Now, I'm going to pause right here. We're not quite done with the first section, but I do want to remind you that I love questions and comments. And so not only do I want you to comment or ask questions about the study, um, but I love going back and seeing people who say hi to one another and just say their name, where they're from, and kind of create a little community here because we are all still in this stupid pandemic and feeling a bit isolated and alone. You know, we're trying to do the right thing and trying to be on our own and trying not to help spread infection. And so take this opportunity for this hour to really be with people in a digital sense. Say hi to one another. Check in with one another. I won't mind. Just make those comments and questions along with your check-ins because it will help me to guide this conversation as best I can to be most helpful. So let's continue on with this idea of the ceiling. And we talked about the number as a holy number. Now let's talk about why were these people sealed. So as I noted before, the sealing of the 12 indicates some kind of protection. Remember what happened at the very beginning of this chapter, right? Think back to the very first verses. John saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So in that little verse, we know something's coming. Something is about to happen. Something that is, think wind blowing against the earth or sea or tree. 
Something destructive is on its way. That sounds a lot to me, hurricane style, right? Like something that's going to be very damaging. So there is some dangerous and violent force that is about to be unleashed on the earth. The angels are holding that force back, but while the angels hold that force back, God is sealing and marking and protecting the servants of God, the faithful people who are there on the earth. Now, this violence is one of those moments where the purification of the world is about to take place, right? This cleansing, this wiping clean of the earth and all of the problems of the earth is about to take place. And God wants to mark those who have been faithful. Marked as such means they're going to be protected from the worst to come. And think back to the Jews who understand this kind of marking. Do you remember our Exodus story? When the final plague is about to hit Egypt, what does God say for the faithful Jews to do? Take lamb's blood. Mark the doorways of their homes with the blood, and if they mark their doorways, they will be protected from the angel of death that will hover over the city. They will be passed over by that angel of death because they have been marked as God's faithful. Do not think it is coincidence that John's vision sees a lamb sacrificed in order to protect and seal God's faithful people from the wrath to come. That is not a coincidence. There is echoes over and over of the work God has done in the past that God is doing again, but in a new way and in a complete way. God's faithful people will be protected from what is to come. And that's really important. And we end this first section by just noting we've talked about what the seals are and why these people are being sealed. We're going to now consider who makes up the group receiving the seals. So we'll pause there. That's the end of today's first section. And before we move into the second section, we'll take a breath, have a little moment, where if you've got a question or a comment, please post those if you're watching a social media platform or Send Meredith an email. She's monitoring all the comment fields and her emails right now and can get those questions to me. The second section of today's study is going to begin in verse 9. So turn to Revelation 9. Ready? Here we go. After this, I, John, looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We'll pause there. We talked about what the seals are and why the seals are going on God's faithful people. Now let's talk about 
who. Yes, we heard that list of the 144,000, the 1212s. But here we get what John sees. In the first part of this chapter, John hears the number 144,000. Now John sees a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. John may have heard this holy number, 144,000, but when John sees, he sees a countless number of people representing every bit of the human family. This is radically important because we do not limit God's grace. John, in this vision, sees a limitless grace and love from God that includes every person. Nobody is excluded. This section is an expansion of God's plan of salvation. Now, we're going to talk about God's plan of salvation and kind of how that connects with the Jewish people and then expands beyond. Okay, so here's a little historical aside that you know I love. We know that God's plan of salvation began with the Israel people, with the Israelites. Okay, thousands of years ago, generations before the idea of Judaism even took root, God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham that he and Sarah would have descendants that would number the stars and that their descendants would be God's chosen people. Now, God reiterated that promise through Moses at Mount Sinai and birthed the religion of Judaism, right? The Israelites were not Jewish until they received the commandments at Sinai, received that new covenant from God at Sinai. At that point, the Israelites and the Jews became very intertwined. That Jewish identity was carried from Mount Sinai into the promised land, creating the kingdoms and on and on, so that God's purposes could be worked through God's chosen people. Judaism became the bedrock of God's saving work in the world, giving us the actual birth of the Messiah, Jesus himself. And Jesus expanded God's saving vision beyond the people of Israel to include every single person, every single nation on earth. Now here's the big learning, and this is a nuance that we should really understand. God never intended that the path of salvation be limited to the Jewish people. The misunderstanding comes in what you think about chosenness. Chosenness, God's chosen people, never meant that one group of people were the only ones chosen for oneness with God, but rather that the one group chosen would be the bridge for all of humanity to reach oneness and wholeness with God. See that little nuance there? Being chosen didn't mean that you were in and everyone else was out. Being chosen meant you had the job of making sure everyone else knew they were in. Does that make sense? The great multitude of God's servants here in the throne room, 
the countless people from everywhere on earth represent the entire host of the faithful all around the world that most certainly number more than 144,000. All right, I see one question over on the side. Sally asks about whether the seal is the same seal that we receive at baptism. Good question, Sally. There is a very common thread between the seal that John sees being given to the faithful servants and the seal that we receive in baptism. Certainly, the seal that we say in baptism, um, if you remember in our baptismal services, there is water used, and the water is used to as a representation of the cleansing of baptism in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the priest or bishop, whomever is there, takes oil, and puts the sign of the cross on the forehead of the baptizan and says, you are sealed by Christ. I'm sorry, you are sealed in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. There is this sense of being marked as God's, marked as Christ's own forever that is protective. In a very real way, that is the mark that we carry with us forward in a world that is hard and rough and hurtful and painful and scary. It's that mark that maintains us through all of that pain. In Revelation, that seal, that mark, is given a much more tangible sense, but the spirit of that mark is definitely moving in the same direction. And we're going to actually talk a little bit about that spirit, so to speak, um, at the very end of today's study. So thank you. That's a good question. Let's keep moving on. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? Well, I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship Him day and night within His temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pause here and remember the point of Revelation. Revelation is a letter that John writes to the seven churches in Asia. <laughs> I know we looked at that not too long ago, but with all this drama we can forget, this is a letter. This is a letter that John is writing to these seven churches. These are real congregations in real places, and these real people need a real word of hope because what they are about to face is going to be very hard. You see, John loves these churches, and he knows that they're entering the phase of life, a phase of reality that's going to be really hard. The persecution of the church is beginning right about now. 
And the persecution is going to flare up over the next few generations to really horrible levels. John may not be the fortune teller that we give him credit to be, but John senses that the world is not ready to receive this beautiful gift of Christ, that the world is still broken, and its brokenness is so visceral that the faithful people of God need a constant word of hope to sustain themselves in this really difficult time. What John offers these communities is not a platitude or a cheap, like, everything's going to be okay. That's not really what John is saying here. John offers comfort with the truth that life is hard. And yet, what we see is not all there is. The hardness and the heartbreak and the trouble that we experience in our lives every day is not all there is. Yes, it hurts. And yes, it's painful. And we can be sad and we can be torn up and we can actually lose hope when things get too bad. But John says here to these people he loves, hope is never truly lost. God's work is not done yet. That's an important word. It's a comforting word. That vision plants itself very firmly in the belief that in the end, God wins that goodness and love and hope wins. And his churches need to hear that word. I don't think it's too dramatic to say that, like in the first century, the 21st century needs to hear that word as well. We need that constant reminder that what we see out there, the painfulness and the struggle and the heartbreak, it's not all there is. God's work is not done. We are a part of God's saving work. God's work is happening all around us, and we are a part of it. In the final section of chapter 7, we see this odd little conversation that John has with an elder right there in the middle of the action of the story. So, if we put ourselves back in this letter, John is in the throne room. John's watching all this stuff happen. He is witnessing what is going on in this throne room, and he's kind of there with all these people. And so naturally, someone might just ask him a question if they're near him, kind of thinking he might know a thing. And we get this very interesting exchange where the elder asks John, assuming that he might know, like, who are these robed in white? Who are these people? Where do they come from? And I can just imagine John in this moment staring at this heavenly being, like, are you talking to me? And John, in a sense, is saying, I'm, uh, aren't you supposed to know what's going on here? I mean, it's almost laughable that here John is almost sneaking into the throne room to see what's going on in this other realm of reality. And one of these divine beings says, hey, what's going on? Who are those people? John's like, what? I don't know. How am I supposed to know? Like, you're here. You're the one. You're the elder. You're supposed to know. And then the elder, I can just, I I love this because I can just see it cinematically. The elder almost grinning like he knew all along, but he just wanted to ask John to see what John thought. 
the elder replies with a statement that is just what the churches need to hear. The elder says, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The faithful people in the seven churches of Asia, and indeed the faithful people right now, you and me, we need this comfort. We can find comfort in this moment when John's vision acknowledges the pain that faith often brings, as well as the divine reward that remaining faithful delivers. The elder sees these faithful people washed white. And he says, they have come through the great ordeal and they have remained faithful. It's almost like a deep breath, like some oxygen when your lungs are tight. These people have been faithful through the great ordeal and they are reaping their reward for being faithful. That's a good word. The message of the elder doesn't stop there. In fact, the elder makes a statement, continues his statement about faithful in a way that echoes through generations. This passage is repeated over and over and over again. We even repeat this passage very often in our own bapt uh, burial services in the Episcopal Church. Let's hear it one more time. For this reason, the faithful are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a comforting word in the middle of the melee of this heavenly throne. God has delivered the faithful to the glory of heaven, to a life of wholeness. This is, in short, the great promise and the great hope made to each one of us, those of us who choose a life of faith. This is the hard, beautiful truth of what being a faithful person is. And it's what the faithful people in John's churches needed to hear, and it's what we need to hear right now. Being true to the Spirit of God, being faithful to the Spirit of God is not easy, and yet being true and being faithful to God's Spirit is what we are called to do even when it's hard. Now, kind of a side note, but I think really important for us to wrestle with here is not just what is found in the text of Revelation, but what it really resonates to us now, how we can then change the way we live now. I've said this many times before, but the Spirit of God is made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. It always bears repeating that the life and teachings of Jesus, those that we receive in our Gospels, gives us the most complete and whole look at God 
and God's Spirit. Okay, I'll say that one more time. What we receive in the person of Jesus, in his life, the choices he makes in his life, in the teachings that he gives to his followers, in the Gospels, that is our starting point. It is where we begin this life of faith. It is in the person of Jesus and the lessons we learn from Jesus that launches us into this life of faith. Now, how we choose to live our lives and how we choose to act in the world, especially toward one another, must begin with Christ. This is what makes life harder. If we're honest about the life of Jesus, he lived in a way that was so remarkable that it is nearly impossible, eh, maybe theologically speaking, it is impossible for us to actually follow everything that he did. But that's actually what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. We choose to follow Jesus, which means we begin with Jesus, what he did and what he taught. Jesus' life and teachings rest squarely on the foundation of love and grace and forgiveness. Love, grace, and forgiveness. Jesus does not love and forgive because love and forgiveness makes sense. Jesus does not love and forgive because love and forgiveness is deserved. Jesus does not love and forgive when people kind of want a little love and forgiveness. Jesus is very clear and very consistent. Love and forgiveness is given freely. Love and forgiveness is never earned. And love and forgiveness can be given over and over and over to the worst of the worst. This is a very hard idea to put into practice. We like this idea in theory. And yet, when the road gets rough, when we are the recipients of the hurt, it is really hard to choose love and forgiveness. And it is really easy to be led by people who choose a way of life that is not grounded in love and forgiveness and does not believe in the freeness of God's grace. Because when we are hurt, we want to make it right. Jesus does not love and forgive because it makes sense or because it is right or because it is deserved. Jesus defines his entire way of being on this idea of love and forgiveness because the grace from God that he receives and that we receive is something that we can never earn. We are never worthy of it. And so stop holding other people accountable to the same level of worthiness that we ourselves cannot meet. Jesus loves and forgives, period. And in Jesus, we see the true Spirit of God. It is that Spirit 
that calls out to us. It is that spirit as disciples of Jesus we choose to follow. And it's that spirit that makes life worth living. In chapter 7, we see a vision of God's love for the faithful. And in chapter 7, we see reiterated once again, the openness of that call is to every single person, to you and to me, every person. Those of us who have answered the call are now responsible to help others hear that call too. Jesus loves and forgives, period. That is the true Spirit of God. All right, I will step down out of my pulpit. Man, you know what? I always talk like this. And I bet people who knew me back in the day knew that at some point I'd probably be preaching because nobody else was ever going to listen to me rattle on and on unless I was in an actual physical pulpit. So glad I have one now. That really is the end of our lesson today. Um, I want to encourage you to ask questions and make comments. If you're watching this video on demand and not live, then do please make the comments in the fields or send Meredith an email. We monitor these comment fields throughout the week and we collect questions and comments as we go. I am grateful to those of you who send me emails too after this session, letting me know how it felt or what you thought or what resonated with you, or I especially love it um, when I get notes from people saying that I was in the grocery store and something happened and someone said a thing and it reminded me of a lesson in Bible study, or I was talking with my spouse or my adult child or something like that, and something that we discussed here in Bible study really resonated, stuck with you, and it helped you in that moment to have a better conversation, a more meaningful conversation, or even better, when this study means enough to you to where you will invite others to join us, man, that's good stuff. So I thank you all for being here, for being present, for being faithful servants of God with me, because together we can change this world for the good. So I wish you all a very good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep me in your prayers as I will keep you in mine. God bless you all. See you next week.